0: You're listening to The Product Edge, and I'm Jade Bennett, Australia's leading product management recruitment expert, founder of Middleton Executive, and a professional development and mindset coach. In this podcast, I take you on a journey into the minds of exceptional product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers. In each episode, I introduce you to experts in their field and my mission is to help every product professional level up and reach their full potential by providing you with the skills, insights, and tools that you need to excel in your career and gain your product edge.
1: I'm Georgia Hart, Principal Consultant at Middleton Executive and your guest host. I'm passionate about all things product and tech and can't wait to explore some amazing topics with Australia's top product leaders. Joining me today is Radhika Dutt, an entrepreneur, a product leader and author of Radical Product Thinking, the new mindset for innovating smarter, which was released in September. She is currently advisor on product thinking for the Monetary Authority of Singapore, Singapore's financial regulator and central bank. She also teaches entrepreneurship and innovation at Northeast University D'Amore-McKinn School of Business and is is an advisor to several startups. Radhika was previously on the Product Edge to talk to us about vision-driven approach versus iteration-driven approach and is back with us to talk about digital pollution and the effect that it's having on society. So once again, welcome to the Product Edge, Radhika. Thank you so much for having me here, Georgia. I'm excited to be here again. I'm super excited to talk about this topic, which I can't wait to get stuck into. So today we're talking about digital pollution. And I'd love to have a quick overview of your definition of digital pollution and what that means to
2: you. Digital pollution is where we create collateral damage to society through our products. If we think about the analogy of environmental pollution, basically, you know, as we started our industrial boom, the growth in industry led to collateral damage in the form of environmental pollution. Similarly, during the tech era, the carefree growth that we've had has really led to something very similar. Uh, and it's had this collateral damage on society. And that's what I'm calling digital pollution. Um, and I think just like environmental pollution, you know, unless we can first recognize environmental pollution and see its effects and talk about it, you know, we can never begin to even solve it. The the problem with digital pollution is it's very abstract to us still. We don't see it with our naked eye. It's not like air pollution where you breathe it in or see it and you say, oh, you know, here's what we're doing to Earth. The problem with digital pollution is that the effects are just not as visible. um, And it's important to start recognizing it really uh, urgently so that we can start to address it.
1: And I'm really, really excited to start talking about this because I think it's so important and it's all having such a massive effect on all of us. So one of the first things that I started researching after reading your book was Screen time. I know I'm pretty bad with my screen time on my phone. I use my screens for work and then I'm watching TV. And I was Googling the statistics and how much time the world spends looking at screens, and it was crazy. Um, what do you think is the effect long term on society around screen time? You know, I think
2: on screen time, it's not just you. I think we've all been really bad about screen time, right? And especially with the pandemic. Um, in terms of how does that affect society in the long term? Uh, I think it's really hard to predict, but one of the things that uh, research is starting to find is that we engage more sh- at a more shallow level with content by spending so much time um, on the internet and on our devices. Um, one of the things that happens is, because we spend so much time on the screen, every single thing that's out there, you know, whether it's a mobile app, a website, uh, a news site, anything, everything is vying for our attention. And everything works so hard to... And you have to kind of one-up each other to be able to grab our attention. Um, and so what happens because of this is... Uh, we keep having to uh, cast our attention and spread it across so many different things, uh, continuously multitasking and switching between things. Um, And this is a form of collusion that I call attention hijacking, where every product has to one-up the other to be able to get our attention. And our attention is that one finite resource. Um, And the result in the end is, because everything has to get your attention and everything has to be so loud, what happens is we lose nuance in society. And the danger with this, right, is I think back to the time when I was living in South Africa. So I lived in South Africa during South Africa's transition from apartheid to democracy. And you know what was really amazing at that time Was we all thought that South Africa was heading towards civil war. You know, there are various factions that were saying, uh, you know, if we don't get our way, um, you know, this is this is fight till the end, and there were really menacing threats, right? Um, And what happened in South Africa was Nelson Mandela and F. W. de Klerk, they were able to give such a nuanced and interesting vision for to society. You know, they um, got society to see this vision of uh, a rainbow nation and that we could get there. It was such a nuanced vision to the point where there was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, to address, you know, what went wrong in the past, the atrocities so that people weren't uh, asking for revenge. Um, I think about today's world, you know, the world of Facebook and Twitter, where messages are so polarized I don't know that South Africa could have made that transition to democracy in today's world. And that's a really um, interesting thing to think about, you know, the, how many countries can survive um, just the kind of ideological polarization that naturally happens with social media today. Um, this is one of the areas why I think nuance is so important in society and that the, this example of South Africa really proved it. And What hijacking attention does is it erodes this nuance so that some of these important um, historical milestones, let's say, wouldn't be possible today without that nuance.
1: Right now, we're going through a huge technology evolution, which is reshaping every product we use and how we use them at such a rapid rate. If people created more vision-driven products, would that help with the inequality problem that we face?
2: So the inequality problem, maybe we can first define what the inequality problem is, and then we can talk about how can we solve this inequality problem and why it's important to have a vision-driven approach to solve it, right? The inequality problem that I see is twofold. The first is the fact that we create wealth inequality through our business practices. And here I would use the examples of Amazon and Uber where we erode workers' rights through our business practices and thereby we create wealth inequality. Um, The second area where we create inequality is often even accidentally, but through algorithms. Um, So we may be creating bias in society, depending on um, who sees a job ad even, Uh, we may be affecting their ability to get a high paying job. Um, So this sort of unintended Um, inequality that we create through our algorithms is the second effect. The reason why it's important to have a vision-driven approach to products is, you know, when you take a vision-driven approach, you're building your product by keeping in mind what's the end state of the world that you're trying to bring about. Um, You have a clear picture of what's the change you want to bring to the world through your product. And what that means is, you know, if you're thinking about that change you want to bring, you can actually look at what the change you, in fact, are bringing. You can measure for that and then you can course correct along the way. If along the way you are not trying to increase inequality, you see that increasing inequality erodes democracy because in a democracy, the more inequality you have, the more you have people who are dissatisfied with the democracy. Um, and so if you think that you want to create a society where democracy thrives, where you're profitable, but you're not necessarily um, affecting society negatively, then you wouldn't want to increase uh, increase um, inequality to such an extent uh, in terms of wealth, um, wealth inequality. Similarly, you'd you'd make more of an effort in terms of reducing the um, discrimination or bias you might be creating through algorithms. But all of that requires starting with a very clear picture of what's the change we want to bring to the world and and then taking responsibility for it.
1: And you touched on there about algorithms, which leads me on to my next question about how AI algorithms affect the content we see. Um, I read some statistics that the, there's about 4.6, sorry, 4.66 billion active users on the internet worldwide, and 65.6% of the entire world's population has access to the internet. That's a lot of people who can influence or be influenced, and I guess that touches on what you were saying earlier about people, you know, wanting to be the change in the world. So, how do AI algorithms affect what we see, and how does that influence? our behaviors?
2: Probably the scariest thing to me about so many people being online is the fact that we are creating increasingly more personalized information, which means that each person gets to see their version of truth. um, And you have no idea what other people are seeing. These algorithms, you know, we're increasingly trying to give people information based on, you know, what they might have been browsing, what their interests are. Um, We give them information so that we're trying to maximize their engagement. And as we maximize their engagement um, and and the time that they spend on site showing them exactly what they want, what, where we really blur lines is between fact and fiction. So you have, as a user, access to so much information. The problem is you just don't know. Despite how much research you're willing to do, it's really hard to tell whether what you're accessing is real information or uh, whether it's fiction. So the the, uh, the unfortunate paradox is that it's really easy to gain information, but it's hard to gain knowledge. Um, the more we have these algorithms where it's not transparent how they work um, and when they're clearly maximizing for financial metrics. And
1: you touched on personalization there, which I guess leads me into talking about data because you need all of that data in order to personalize what you're putting out to the audience and nowadays it's so easy for companies to collect personal data nothing's a secret anymore (laughs) or at least it's hard to keep a secret how does personalized data and collecting this data contribute
2: to digital pollution does it contribute to put digital pollution Absolutely. So the erosion of privacy is another form of digital pollution. And why why is it a form of digital pollution? Um, because for democracy to exist, we need to have free speech. Um, and when we erode privacy, we make it very hard to... Uh, allow for free speech in our society um you know you you touched on exactly uh the issue here which is it's so hard to keep anything secret right um but most of us will say well i don't really have anything to hide um and and that's often you know the consumer um uh, consumer's resigned attitude, because it's really hard to get about, go around um, these these privacy issues. And it's hard to get around without, you know, feeling constantly concerned. So we kind of resign to it. And we say, well, you know, I have nothing to hide. I just use these apps, knowing that they're monitoring uh, and, and keeping track of my data, right? The problem with this kind of acceptance and resignation is the fact that we have to realize that privacy is either for everyone or for no one. So meaning that you can't say that you have nothing to hide, but you know, a journalist or a whistleblower who has something to hide, we can't expect privacy for them and no privacy for you. We either altogether as society say we need privacy because there are people in our society who can protect our rights and they need privacy. If we aren't willing to stand up for that, we're really um, giving into this form of digital pollution. Um, and as we erode privacy, uh, increasingly we'll have less and less of free speech. And so, from that perspective, you know, this. Privacy isn't really not just a right, but it's truly a responsibility, um, and we have to recognize erosion of privacy as a form of digital pollution that we have to fight against because it is going to erode democracy, and increasingly so. Yeah,
1: interesting that you say that it's, you know, our own personal responsibility. I suppose I never thought about it that way, but I know now when all those notifications come up asking to track my apps, I'm definitely touching on no. Because <laughs> it's, you know, I've really started to notice how much my content's changing what's put in front of me and, you know, I don't necessarily see lots of different things anymore. It's always the same content that's put in front of me. So, um, yeah,
2: everyone take responsibility. I like that. <laughs> Yeah. And it's hard to do, isn't it? Because um, there are apps that also make it seem like, well, your data is protected. I'll give you an example. Uh, WhatsApp says to you, well, you know, we have end-to-end encryption, but it's not that they don't track metadata. So when I say, you know, this, we as organizations also have this responsibility to protect users' privacy, you know, we can't be lax about it either. So if we look at WhatsApp's example, yes, they have end-to-end encryption, but where they track metadata um, is, you know, they're keeping track of who is calling whom and when. And this is immensely valuable metadata, right? Uh, and which is why Facebook paid such a huge sum to acquire the uh, startup, Um, If we think about who's calling whom, let's think about a journalist being called by a whistleblower. Just that data alone, that you as a whistleblower are calling a journalist, that's enough to compromise you. It's not about what you say necessarily. Um, If we look at the other example of Apple, which recently announced that um, they're now weakening their encryption uh, to be able to scan for um, child sex abuse material, you know, there, again, it's an erosion of privacy, but it's couched and framed as, oh, we're doing this to protect people and protect consumers. And this is always how erosion of privacy is very often framed that, oh, it's for your own good, right? But this is where we really have to realize that we have this responsibility as consumers to demand privacy, um, just not because you need privacy, because you have anything to hide. And in fact, you know, companies often say, well, if you have nothing to hide, and in fact, Apple's chief privacy um, engineer made the statement saying, well, you know, if you don't have child sex abuse, sex abuse material on your phone, then you have no nothing to worry about. And this is exactly the argument that's made to make people feel slightly bad about complaining about privacy and wanting privacy, right? Uh, But we really have to kind of reframe that argument, thinking about this as a responsibility that we have to society to demand privacy. So interesting. And do
1: you have any advice for those who perhaps want to avoid contributing to digital pollution? What can an individual consumer or someone who's even creating products out there, what
2: can they do? So, Let's first talk about those of us who are building products. Um, Since the book, um, Radical Product Thinking, it's about how you can build vision-driven products. And, um, you know, a lot of that uh, gives you, the the reason I wrote that was, you know, to give organizations a very systematic approach for building successful products. Um, And what I realized is in giving organizations the superpower, I needed to talk about Um, the responsibility that came with it. And which is why, you know, in the last part of the book, I talk about digital pollution and why we need to think about this responsibility as we use this methodology to build successful products. Um, So what can we do as builders of products or as business leaders? Um, We have to really embed this responsibility In every step of how we build products. Um, And maybe this is where I'll take a moment to talk about what I mean by this vision driven approach and what radical thinking, uh, radical product thinking is about. Um, When I talk about radical product thinking, What I mean is that we can start with a really clear vision for the change that we want to bring to the world. And then we can very systematically translate that into a strategy, into an actionable set of steps that help us translate this vision into um, something that you can execute on. Um, Once you have a vision and strategy, then you can uh, bring this vision and strategy into your everyday decisions through your priorities. Um, The next step then is... Um, using those priorities in your execution and measurement, and then measuring whether you're actually successful um, in creating, in bringing about this vision. Um, And then finally, you can apply all of these ideas in your culture as well. The main point of radical product thinking is that you can very systematically translate your vision for change into reality by taking this five-step approach of vision, strategy, prioritization, execution, measurement, and culture. When we think about responsibility, we need to really think about that responsibility at every point. So let's take the example of a vision. You know, most organizations, when they Think about a vision, a lot of the focus is on the organization's goals. Um, So, for example, you know, I've heard so many startups talk about, oh, our vision is to be a billion-dollar company by doing blah, blah, and blah. Um, Or, you know, very often the vision is to be the leader in blah, blah. Again, that being the leader is about your own goals. The radical product thinking approach Instead, it's about what's the problem that you want to solve in the world. Um, it helps you define, you know, whose problem are you solving? What is their problem? Why does it need to be solved? Knowing that maybe it doesn't even need to be solved. Um, then finally, how will you solve it? So. The the thing about the radical vision statement is that there is no place in it for your own company's goals. Um, This is not about achieving your goals, but rather solving the problem that you want to see in the world to the point where if you take yourself out of the equation altogether, you would still be happy to see this problem solved. You know, when I say something like this, the next question is obviously going to be well, but you know, you have to make a living, you have to make profits, otherwise, we cease to exist as a company. And I absolutely recognize that. And this is, and the way you take into account these short term needs for your company is where you think about your priorities. Priorities is where you balance the long term against the short term. And by all means, this is where we can be pragmatic. So think about an X and Y axis. If your y-axis is the vision, um, and whether something is good for your vision or not, you can think about your survival on the x-axis, whether something is helping you survive or not in the short term. Now, things that are helping you survive and that are good for your vision, of course, those are the ideal decisions. Those are the easy decisions. Um, Things that are not helping you survive in the short term, Um, but they're good for your vision, that's stuff that's where you're investing in the vision. So the way we can take the short-term into account is by thinking about the X and Y axis of long-term against short-term. Think about your Y axis as the vision and the long-term. You're trading that off against your X axis, which is survival, uh, and that's your short-term. So things that are helping you with your long-term and good for your vision, and it's good for helping you survive in the short term, those are the easy decisions. That's your ideal quadrant. Um, Things that are good for your vision, but it's not helping you survive in the short term, those are the areas where you're investing in the vision. The opposite of investing in the vision is where you're taking on vision debt. That's stuff that's helping you survive in the short term, helping you make money, let's say, but it's not good for your vision in the longer term. Now there's no wrong decision per se, but the more you take on vision debt, the further away you're going from your vision. Um, And the opposite of that would be, you know, you can't do too much of investing in the vision without thinking about the short-term at all, because you'll cease to exist as a business if you're always focused on the long-term and you don't think about making money in the short-term. So you have to find the right balance between these quadrants. and so when we think about responsibility, we think about both the long-term and the short-term, and we think about how we're investing in the vision. Um, and if you're, for example, collecting me- metadata, we have to realize that that is vision debt. You know, Unless your vision is to make things worse for society, which you know most of us don't go about things in this villainous way, right? We just accidentally kind of do that. Um, and it's because we often don't realize that we're taking on vision debt. Um, And so once we start to recognize that, you know, every time we collect metadata that we're taking on vision debt, we can start to think about how am I going to invest in vision by either protecting metadata or reducing the amount of metadata I'm collecting or investing in anonymizing this data so it's truly not trackable. Um, so those are things that we can do very systematically. So I've talked about vision, um, the prioritization. Um, and in the book, I talk about each of the five steps and how we can really systematically think about um, embedding responsibility at each step. Um, and, and that's the important part. You know, very often when we talk about security, for example, right, um, or privacy, we say you have to do privacy by design or you have to do security by design. It's not something that you can kind of slap on at the end. Similarly. Um, if we want to take responsibility if we want to avoid digital pollution we have to do responsibility by design and
1: again when you're touching on vision debt I guess that's not something that I've ever really thought of before but I'm sure lots of companies move away from you know what their actual vision is because they're not making money when you're not making money I think a lot of people associate that with not being successful, but going back to your why, and this is what I love about the product space is understanding your why um, and making sure that, yeah, you're solving problems that need to be solved as opposed to trying to create something that people don't necessarily need. Super, super important. Um,
2: Radhika... (laughs) Can I I add one more thing to that? Yes. (laughs) What you said, I I loved what you said about vision debt, right? And I want to bring this back to, you know, thinking about digital pollution is not just an altruistic thing. What you talked about in terms of moving away from your uh, vision sometimes just to make money in the short term, and sometimes that brings us away from our vision, Recognizing vision debt is also important for our business, you know. So very one example of a product disease that I talk about in the book is obsessive sales disorder, mm-hmm. uh, which is where, you know, to be able to survive in the short term, um, we may end up taking on features where customers say, well, you know, if you just add this one custom feature, I'm willing to buy from you. Uh, and pretty soon before you know it, your entire roadmap is driven by a bunch of custom features that you're building. Now, it's not bad per se to take on a custom feature, right? If you have to survive, you sometimes have to take on custom features, but Very often, we don't even recognize that we're taking on vision debt, and soon our product just starts to drift, um, and we start to look like a services company instead of a product company, um, and that gets in the way of building a successful business uh, because we take on so much vision debt. So the same process of recognizing vision debt and getting into the habit of recognizing vision debt versus investing in the vision is helpful in building successful business as much as it's helpful for us to also start to recognize when we're creating digital pollution love that
1: and um, one of the stories that I really loved in your book especially was um when you were talking about the game the school and they were teaching maths and your son absolutely loved this game was an absolute wizard maths but your daughter was not as I guess, invested in the game that was being built. And it's because, you know, it was a game designed more for, um, I guess, males, which I don't think maybe they had perhaps meant to happen. With people building products, how can they ensure that they're building co- products for everybody? Should products be for everybody? Should they be targeted at a certain demographic or target audience? Um, is that, That's something that I'd love to hear you talk about. <laughs>
2: Oh, I'm so glad you brought this one up. Um, (laughs) So, you know, actually, so my daughter is just as good at math. Um, What I've realized is, and for all the parents out there who have daughters who are brilliant at math, you will find that it's so hard to find either products or unfortunately, even teachers who recognize that uh, girls are good at math. And it's because of our inherent biases uh, there's been research that shows that actually even teachers call on boys more often in math class because of this innate bias that boys are better at math. Um, and so when we build products, uh, we have to think about our own innate biases uh, in how we design products. And that was what I thought was um. A little unfortunate about this product, Um, uh, maybe for our listeners, I'll share a little bit of the story. Um, What happened with this particular math game that Georgia was talking about was um, my son came home from school one day and he was super excited about Prodigy Game. I think it's also available in uh, a lot of the Australian schools. And so maybe your kids are playing it. Um, And so he was so excited about this game, uh, whereas my daughter, who's also an advanced math student, had been introduced to it, but hated this game. Um, And the way the game works is it's Pokemon characters that battle each other, uh, and you have to answer math question right to battle each other. And so it turns out that boys actually really enjoy this combat-based game versus girls don't like combat in games as much. Uh, combat turns out to be very, very polarizing for girls. They prefer more of this immersion or uh, completion of missions, etc., in games. And so... What was really unfortunate is that Prodigy you know, hadn't really thought about equality in the classroom in how they built the product. Uh, even a lot of their marketing was centered around showing boys who were pumping their fists going, yes, um, whereas girls were shown looking very sullen. Um, and what's um, interesting, right, is even my kids saw through this gender targeting where my sons, when I asked my kids, you know, who do you think this game is made for? My son says, well, for boys, of course. Um, and my daughter responded to this with biting sarcasm saying, uh, uh, it's for boys, but don't worry, the next version will be for girls. And they'll create a version that invites you out to tea if you get the answers, right? Mm-hmm. Um And, you know, her commentary was just a comment, not just on Prodigy Game, but on really how we build products when we don't think about equality or kind of the demographic we're targeting. So you asked, you know, what can we do as uh, business leaders, product leaders to be able to build products that work for it, that create a better world for all? So, you know, it's not necessarily targeting all demographics, but it's really thinking about Is our product creating a better world for all, or are we unevenly affecting society through our product? Um, And if we think about it this way, then, you know, one of the things that we will look for in our own product teams is diversity. Because the reality is, you know, if we don't have diversity in our teams... um, For example, if we have a bunch of guys designing a game for math, we're going to come out with a game that focuses on combat. And so unless you have that sort of diversity in your team, it's hard to design for a group of users that's diverse. Uh, And I want to share a counterexample of a math product that's actually designed well and that I found to work for both sexes. And it was designed with such purpose and uh, deliberation that it truly impressed me. Um, so a good friend of mine used to be the head of design for Khan Academy. And I did not know this at the time, but my daughter actually liked doing math on Khan Academy. And one of the things I noticed was, you know, both my son and daughter played equally with it. Um, all the avatars on Um, Khan Academy, all the badges that you get, they're all completely gender neutral. Even the colors are gender neutral. Uh, The pictures that they have uh, represent kids of all colors, shapes, and sizes. You know, they were just, they were very purposeful in how they were showing diversity and even their uh, word games used names that were representative of the population. And so it turned out that uh, my friend, uh, Meili Ku was doing all of this very purposefully in the background um, and to be able to deliver this sort of diversity and design for diversity, one of the things that she invested in was bringing together a really diverse team and investing in a culture to ensure that you could sustain that sort of diversity. Um, And that's one of the things that maybe uh, I'd love to share as a takeaway lesson. For us to be responsible also means that we have to create, um, think about creating a better world or or a world that works for all. And that means we have to start with our teams to be able to create that.
1: She sounds like someone I'm definitely going to go and stalk on LinkedIn.
3: (laughs) I'm happy to introduce you.
1: (laughs) I'd love that. Um, On that, how can our Product Edge listeners
2: stay in contact with you or stay connected with you? Uh, So one way is uh, do sign up for my mailing list on radicalproduct.com. So you can download the entire toolkit for free uh, when you join the mailing list. And that walks you through all of these five elements, or actually four of the elements of um, radical product thinking. Uh, The fifth one, I'll put it out on the toolkit very soon. Um, You can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. I always love to hear from radical product thinkers about how they're creating change in the world um, using this methodology. That's one of the most rewarding aspects of what I've been working on.
1: I love it. And Radhika, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's um, always a pleasure speaking to you and and getting all these takeaways from you. I hope everyone's got more takeaways today. Um, What would be your one piece of
2: advice for product managers today?
3: um,
2: That I think you know, as we think about responsibility, but as we think about uh, building better products, uh, maybe one thing is, you know, you may sometimes feel like you're trying to uh, push the boulder up the hill, that it's not always easy. Maybe one of the ways that may be helpful is, um, you know, you may find that your work is often tactical, where it's really hard to bring up such issues. One of the ways you can elevate yourself in your role and take on a more strategic role is by starting to talk about the vision and uh, to start to talk about strategy. So once you start to take more of a facilitative role in your organization by talking about vision and strategy, um, you can start to um, spread your thinking on a lot of these important topics. And the Simplest way, by the way, just to get started, um, because sometimes it's hard to just out of the blue say, you know, let's talk about our vision. One of the simplest tricks that I use is when you have prioritization discussions or you're talking to your team about your next sprint planning, start to use this X and Y axis for your sprint planning, where you talk about your vision versus survival, and. Um, As you plan your sprint, you can talk about which features go in the ideal quadrant versus in the vision debt quadrant and in the investing in the vision quadrant. By starting those discussions, you start to put yourself in the position of talking about the vision and uh, making the right trade-offs between vision and survival. And that is your foray into being able to talk more about the vision and get your team aligned on, well, what is our vision? And you can use the Radical Product Toolkit to do a group exercise uh, and align your team on the vision. And you start to take on more of this leadership role by um, getting the team to think about the vision and facilitating these discussions. And you can kind of keep taking on more of a strategic role and, you know, Level up these discussions um, through this communication. So the the advice is basically, you know, having these discussions and taking on responsibility. A lot of that comes from being able to take on a more strategic role. Um, And these are some tips so that you can take on a more strategic role, even if your role isn't always defined to be more strategic and there's more tactical stuff expected out of you.
1: I love it. Thank you so much, Radhika. Once again, it was great to have you on here today. Um, I encourage everyone to go and read the book. It's an amazing book. I'm halfway through it at the minute and so many little takeaways that I'm even going to be implementing into my recruitment career. So (laughs) thank you, Radhika. Um, And we'll speak to you again soon, I'm sure.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a pleasure.
3: Hatch have big bold goals to become the place where Australians start their shopping journey and Middleton Exec is excited to be partnering with them to grow their product team. They're looking for principal and senior product managers to help to enhance the overall digital experience for their customers. If you have a good understanding of search and search mechanics, working experience with recommendation algorithms and know your way around content architecture, this could be the role for you. Likewise, if you're an expert in setting product strategy and building roadmaps, then I'd love to speak to you for the search and discovery role. Hatch are also moving to the concept of one-to-one commerce and need someone to drive hyper-personalization, which cuts across the whole digital e-commerce experience. If you have a heavy personalization background, experience in customer data profiling, you can refine the algorithms, love innovation, and want to work with emerging te- experiential technologies to help them better understand their customers, I'd love to speak to you about the personalization role. If you're up for the adventure, thrive in a fast-paced and agile environment, and want to work with a passionate, customer-centric team, then please reach out to Charlie at Middleton Exec for more information.
0: Thank you for listening to The Product Edge brought to you by Middleton Executive. You can head to theproductedge.com.au to subscribe to Australia's number one podcast for all things product management. I would love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. Until next time, I look forward to introducing you to more product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers who will share their insights and experiences to help you level up and reach your full potential.